Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. I'm joined by Thea Leneduzzi, who in spite of all my unsubtle attempts to suggest she's going on too many holidays, is indeed going on holiday next week. And has in fact inspired you to go on one of I was going to say, so am I, I'm not going to be too <laughs> critical. Firstly, where are you going? Secondly, will you be wearing a large puffer jacket? And thirdly, what books will you be reading? The West Highlands, yes. Um, <laughs> I knew that already. <laughs> and, be honest, I didn't um, know that actually. I just just guessed. yeah. Just will you be wearing a yeah. huge puffer jacket? But you are going to be on a British summer holiday. I think this yeah. is exactly right. Yes. British summer holiday yeah. in a gigantic North Face puffer jacket yes. designed to take me down to temperatures of minus twelve, I believe. Yeah. Yes. That's good pessimism. As <laughs> so, well. And and as for the, as for the reading, I'm yeah. going to be taking Joanna Walsh's Worlds, which I find really hard to say, so I've actually had to write it down Go so on. I can read it. Worlds from the Word's End. It's oh. a collection of absurdist stories and fragments, that favourite modernist word, which I think will probably resonate with me really? as I'm stalking across the West Highlands, that, being pelted with rain and wondering. That is a really good, that's a great TLS book to take, isn't it? It's not normal. It's also very slim. I think it's is about it? 100 pages. Are you pages. not taking anything else? Uh, no, because I have to carry everything on my oh, back God. every day for 100 miles. You're not walking 100 miles? Oh. I am walking. Well, I'm going to try to walk 100 miles. Over five days? Over seven days. Oh, is that easy? Uh, I will let you know. Yeah, you're going to come back really healthy. Not brown, or obviously. Broken. It's cause you... broken and absurd. <laughs> the thing is, you don't like the cold. <laughs> no, I know. I'm trying to toughen myself up. Yeah. You're the Theresa May of the TLS, I keep saying. Oh, that. God. If you want to subscribe to the TLS, Google TLS subscriptions and type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Coming up on the show this week, we shall be, as promised, exploring the possibility of 16 more years of Donald Trump. Yes. The author and political scientist Edward Lutvak has written the lead piece analysing the secret of Trump's success and it comes down to this. Cars. He'll be on the line from the US. In a handy segue, the philosopher Cecilia Hayes will be on hand to discuss the phenomenon of human irrationality. Why do people persist in being irrational in the face of credible evidence? She'll help us to answer that. And new Booker judge Michael Hoffman will read a poem published in the TLS this week, his own translation of Female 33 by H.M. Enzenberger. 
First, then, to the most powerful man in the world, the President of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Of course, Trump, more than any politician of this or any other generation, is an inevitable subject for persistent mockery on account of his absurdly lingering handshakes, his cloacal outpourings on Twitter, his refusal to stand by his words even amid their contradiction, his hair and his hands. And yet such responses are not only exhaustingly fruitless, but perhaps negligent in the face of larger questions. Why was Trump so successful in the first place? Why does his message persist amid all of the antiphonal objection? In this week's paper, Edward Lutvak is sanguine about the future prospects of this reviled figure who has been given, in Lutvak's words, to the United States and the world very possibly for 16 years. The president's re-election committee is already hard at work, while his daughter Ivanka Trump is duly apprenticed in the White House that she means to occupy as America's first female president. And Lutvak's reason for Trump's longevity? Cars, is the reductive answer. More broadly, the urgent need to mobilise government policies to increase American jobs and wages in firm opposition to all the competing international and planetary priorities continually proffered by elite Americans and their core institutions. But the car market is perhaps the best way of looking at this phenomenon. Almost half of American households cannot afford a new automobile. This is a staggering indictment of its economy and a prime mover in its politics. Not least because, as Lutvak notes, four wheels and an engine might as well be grafted onto Homo Americanus, who rarely lives within walking distance of his or her job or even proper food shop, who rarely has access to useful public transport, and for whom a recalcitrant ignition or anything else that prevents driving often means the loss of a day's earnings as well as possibly crippling repair costs. So Trump is committed to seeking to talk up American wages and down environmental regulations. The test for him will not be whether media types continue to find him boorish or foolish. They, we, will. But whether he can genuinely deliver that $1.3 trillion infrastructure plan that would energise the American economy and make cars affordable once more. No wonder, concludes Lutvak, that leading Democrats and non-Trumpers continue to act hysterically even eight months after the election. President Trump's plan threatens to exclude them all from office until long past their retirement age. That is quite the prediction. Edward Lutvak joins us now. Uh, Edward, thank you uh, for for coming on the show today. Uh, Perhaps you might give us a sense of what you call the hysteria surrounding Trump. In America, how does that hysteria manifest itself? Well, uh, it's a sort of classic witch hunt, because at the present moment, anybody at all associated in any way at all with Trump, uh, familial, commercial, accidental, whatever, who has had any contact with any Russian at all, private, public, spy, businessman, is automatically listed as a traitor who must now be investigated by the FBI, by the CIA, by the Department of Justice, local police, no doubt, to uncover uh, whether he's actually Agent Zebra 23. In fact, many people... Uh, seem to believe that Trump is Agent Zebra 23, carefully coached by the old KGB for the last decades and so on. In my piece, I begin by saying that this particular political economy, where it combines globalization that opens 
American markets, including labor markets to global competition, and regulation that makes life more difficult for people at the lower end of the income scale. For example, car regulations that prevent the sale in the United States of cars that are less than about $13,000 or $14,000. Plenty of cars, when I go abroad, I routinely rent cars that cost $7,000 in Europe and in Japan, and I find them perfectly comfortable. But they're not allowed to be sold in the United States because of this regulatory Reich, which imposes upper-middle-class tastes, upper-middle-class values, environmental safety and so on, on everybody else. If you travel around the inner city around midnight, you see not criminals in the streets. You see working Americans, many of them, of course, black and so on, who are waiting to go home, waiting for that bus, because they cannot afford a car. And why, is, why they can't afford a car is because the upper middle class consensus says you must have a really safe, really fuel economical, really non-polluting car. And your contention here is not only actually that Trump recognized that and that sort of drove him, as it were, to the White House, but Bernie Sanders exactly. uh, recognized I, a similar point. I began point. my piece by saying that the political economy of this election which, by the way, is reproduced elsewhere. I, I think in England, to some degree, which explains the uh, success of uh, Corbyn in spite of his sort of his ball of foreign policy or Hamas foreign policy. He, nevertheless, the political economy that extends made Sanders the Democratic candidate. He is the one who, without being pushed, by the lobbyists and pushed by the system and pushed by money was simply winning. And Trump was the fellow who was running against highly qualified Republicans, successful governors, successful senators, and he beats them all because Sanders and Trump, who had the same, exactly the same political economy, uh, they were right in terms of the, the politics of the situation. Do you think Sanders could have beaten Trump? Oh, yes. Do Absolutely. You? I say that, and so do the opinion polls. Every opinion poll taken showed that Sanders would beat Trump. But it didn't matter because the Democratic Party machine was being fed out of the $1.6 billion raised by Hillary Clinton. She spent approximately $400 million to feed the political operatives, the consultants, the people, the people you saw on CNN, whereas Sanders was not feeding a whole army of support. And none of this is to mention the distortive effects of, of the superdelegates, which oh, only yes, only the, the Democratic Party yeah, have. So I'm wondering I, I if... I, of course, uh, mentioned them in the piece. And so do you think that what has happened will, will force the Democratic Party to reconsider that thing that they have that the Republican Party does not? They're studiously not reconsidering it because the Sanders way is an extremely painful way. It means doing politics without money. It wasn't just Hillary. The way the Democratic establishment was doing politics, you wake up in the morning and the first thing you open these wonderful envelopes that come in with checks from the hedge funds, you know, from Silicon Valley, from all these people. 
the liberals in Silicon Valley, these are people who love humanity and who want to have, who absolutely need, of course, their Chinese cooks and their Filipino valets, their Mexican gardeners, and therefore believe in free immigration because they're liberal, they're not racist, they're not reactionaries. These people send you huge checks. If you do the politics the Sanders way, and actually use terminology like the working class. And no, you're not in favor of unlimited immigration. No, thank you. And you are not in favor of unlimited globalization. You get nothing. And if we follow the argument, and so we end up with this politics, which is a politics that will benefit the working classes because it will deal with all of those things, and to simplify, it will make it affordable for Americans to be able to buy cars. Is the logical conclusion of that, if you can afford a car, then you can turn your mind to the, in inverted commas, higher things? Well, no. If you can afford the car, it means you can have a job. It means that you can actually go to a proper supermarket and buy fresh food for your family. And instead of having to use the nearby convenience store with heavy bars on the windows in which they sell only stale packaged goods, and mediocre products that made specially for that market. Having a car in America is not a luxury in any shape or form. Last night I was in Baltimore by midnight coming back from a late conference, and I saw these thousands of people waiting for buses. These are low-income workers who wait for buses that don't arrive. You know, we're not in Japan. In Japan, having a car is in a way an eccentricity. Because yeah. if you want to make an excursion with your family, you know, you should rent one once in a while. Because you have public transport everywhere, everywhere. But in the United States, car is not in any shape or form a luxury. And the fact that Obama, who supposedly has some kind of sensibility for these things, wrote decree after decree after decree, which raised the cost of cars by $300 here, $400 there, meaning that, you know, specifically... Hundreds of thousands of Americans were shut out of the new car market. The very latest one, which it did, by the way, just weeks before leaving, it mandates a rear-view camera. A rear-view camera adds about $400 to the cost of the car, and you can then do the statistics on how many tens of thousands of Americans will now have to wait for non-arriving buses. So, so do we think, then, that it's a simple equation here? Trump will be judged by his economic success. Exactly. If he fails to deliver on his public works program, either because the Democrats are all-out opposition, which is now all-out opposition, they won't confirm anybody without forcing through every procedure and stuff. If the Democrats stop his or the Republicans' refusal to pay for it, either way, because many Republicans, you know, all they care about is the budget. Well, it's quite a, social, it's quite the, a socialist plan, isn't it? The program fails, but I can tell you that if the Democrats at the next election come up with another Hillary Clinton, yeah. who thinks that all Americans are black women and that all Americans are pansexual, Americans are environmental fanatics, then you're going to lose again. But if we have a reality check on Trump at the minute. He has a Republican majority in both houses. He's so far passed nothing of any great significance. His approval rating is 37%. And that's the least approved 
president yeah. right, well, in the history well, of modern man, politics. He can't get a health care proposal through despite him staking his reputation on it. So although there's a sanguine argument which you pitch very well for Trump, there's also an argument that this administration remains in terminal crisis despite that. Yeah, that may be so, but you know, what I wrote about was the political economy of the situation, and that doesn't go away. That's yeah. why the Silicon Valley moguls of course, are portrayed in the American media as liberals because, you know, they're pro-immigration without looking at what it means. It means Victorian England. Victorian England is reborn in Silicon Valley. If you go to Silicon Valley, this is the domain of maids, cleaners, fetchers. These people don't even brush their own teeth. They're surrounded by servants. They have under-parlor-maids galore. The under-parlor-maid crowd are the, now the exemplary liberals. Yeah. Oh, boy, boy. I mean, Elon Musk made a statement against Trump. and Oh, my God. They carry it. Elon Musk is the guy who got a billion dollars from Obama to manufacture an automobile whose cost of the president is $65,000. His new one... He says will be thirty-five thousand dollars. That is still, still double or yeah. triple the amount that you can buy a car in Europe. And we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for articulating that side of the argument. It's a really Good. interesting Thank point. You. Thank you, Edward. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating paradox that Edward's making. Essentially, that it takes a billionaire to represent the unmoneyed masses against mm-hmm. the establishment. That's why he becomes this anti-establishment figure, despite being almost a perfect example of the establishment because the Hillary, I think there is something in what he's saying there, that the Clinton message was pitched away from the interests of a large swathe of Americans. Yeah. That seems to be a convincing I'm much less sangry, I think you are, about because I think Trump is a is a, is a snowballing disaster with all sorts of problems that means he won't last, he may not last one term, I don't believe he'll last four or whatever. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually either, I certainly hope not I think that goes without saying. I wonder to what extent this um, formula that, that Edward has, has written about, where the ability of the Americans to afford a car uh, leads them to vote one way or another. I wonder if there's a an echo of that in, in the British relationship with rail transport. Well, because if you think if you think about Corbyn's popularity, his number one policy was nationalising the railways. And it, was, it and, was until he started doing yeah. that. But yeah, exactly right. And that's always a popular policy. Yeah. Which is and, and you know, people are let down by the, the rising rail fares and, and that that contributes to the same kind of stagnation and stasis, actually. The inability of people to get around, get to work, choose what jobs they can and can't do. The big difference, I think, in, and this is the thing I think in the end is an interesting question about Labour. Corbyn is ultimately pro-immigration. Corbyn's values he um, he uh, insists on being available to people who weren't born in this country mm. the truly populist of which Trump is a good example combines that sort of economic realism with, with popularity build wars. yeah building wars and Corbyn isn't doing that and yeah that's what I wonder whether he can eventually get to the to, to true popularity because there's lots of people who want protectionism for British jobs of the sort that Trump promises America and Corbyn He'll either, if he decides to do that, he'll be abandoning a philosophy of a lifetime and be an arch pragmatist in a way that his whole brand is based on not being. Mm. Or he won't do it, in which case he may not ever be electorally popular to a large extent. That seems to be an interesting question of how far Corbyn is willing to play the game of politics or not. Mm. I think we end on a dot, dot, dot. Yeah, exactly. Let's end on a dot, dot, dot. From Donald Trump to the spectre of irrationality. 
I'll leave a pause there. For some 50 years, begins Cecilia Hayes in the TLS this week, experimental psychologists have been busily and sometimes gleefully showing that we are all guilty of bias and sloppy thinking. And yet, apparently, some experts on reasoning, working in economics, philosophy and psychology, still respond to evidence of human irrationality with denial. The view persists that more or less humans are logical and rational beings. But are we? Well, that's a large question. And thankfully, Celia Hayes joins Thea and me to help try to answer it. Welcome to you, Celia. Hello. Let's begin then. Uh, what evidence is there that we are not always rational? And we may leave aside the argument of the election of Donald Trump. But is there clear evidence that human beings aren't especially rational? Oh, there is now lots of evidence that we're not completely rational, let's say. Let's not go any further than that. From laboratory experiments, things like what's known as the belief perseverance effect. So there was one study in which people were asked to distinguish real from fake suicide notes. They, you know, they were shown pieces of paper with um, goodbye messages on them and asked to form two piles, one where these were genuine and the other where they were fake. And after they'd done that, they were given some feedback on their performance, told that they'd either done it really well or very badly, um, and then left, you know, to sort of by themselves for a few minutes to think about this. Presumably in that period, they thought of all kinds of reasons why they might be good at detecting fake and real suicide notes. Then they were told the truth of the matter, which was that the feedback had been fake. It bore no relationship to how good they'd been at the task. But then later on, they were asked, how well do you think you did? How well do you think you'd get on in another task like that in future? And people used the feedback that they had been told was completely false. So those who'd been told they'd done well thought they'd do really well in the future and so on. So there was no revision of their beliefs using the good reasons they'd been given to revise their beliefs about their performance. Was that true for both positive and negative? Because I wondered whether ego plays up. Because if someone tells you you're good, you may be more willing to believe it. Uh, is it true of both negative and positive? Oh, very good point. I mean, that's, that's very much the kind of strategy which has been used in this research to sort of excuse us in cases like this. No, it was positive and negative. Although in that particular experiment, I don't think there was a kind of a middle group where people weren't given any feedback at all. So, you know, the strategy you're adopting, it's the kind of strategy people have used to say, oh, no, we're rational, really. And sometimes <laughs> it works. Yeah, I don't think we are rational, so I'm not, I'm not keen to, to, to pitch that argument. Uh, give us another example. There's another great one you, you, you give us. Uh, about irrational behaviour. Linda, the philosophy major. I, lo I, I love this question. Yeah, that, that's another absolute classic. So people are given a sort of a verbal sketch of a person. Um, Linda's 31 years old. She's single. She's outspoken. She's very bright. She studied philosophy in college. She was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice. So they're given that sketch and then they're asked, is Linda more likely to be a bank teller or both a bank teller and a feminist? And the majority of people opt for the second option. They say, oh, she's, she's more likely to be a bank teller and an active feminist. 
and thereby they fall for something known as the conjunction fallacy. Um, the probability of two things happening together, yeah. being a bank teller and an active feminist, is always equal to or lower than the probability of one of those things happening by itself, of Linda being just a bank teller. So the vast majority of people just get the answer wrong. And that's because there's a kind of instinctive thing to think that person is likely to be a feminist and therefore I'm not going to trouble myself with the logical position here, which is the category of bank teller is always going to be more likely because it's broader. That's right. I think the, the verbal sketch creates a kind of an image in our minds of this character. And when we're asked the question, we just consult that image. And, you know, the image that we've formed on the basis of past experience probably, you know, had Linda wearing clothes that we associate with feminism. So we just answer on the basis of that picture rather than through formal reasoning. And does that tie in, because there have been a number of books in recent years, I think an increasing increasing number of books, like Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, that are hugely successful because we seem to be so fascinated with the way that we think. Does that example tie in with his thinking fast or slow model? Are we more likely to, to leap to the conclusion that she's both a, a bank teller and a feminist because the kind of the punch words have been there that, that make us leap to that conclusion? Yes, it ties in very well. Indeed, Daniel Kahneman's view is very much a response to Linda problems and the problems we have with them. Um, so what he would say is we use a very cheap and dirty route when we're asked the Linda question. We just consult the mental image that we have in our minds instead of using what he calls system two thinking, which is slow, conscious, deliberative. It takes a lot of work so we use that, what he calls system two thinking or slow thinking, pretty rarely, most of the time, we rely on separate processes which are cheap and dirty. And what's your problem with that, that thesis uh, from, from Kahneman? Um, I think it's pretty good. In fact, um, in this uh, research field, that is the kind of response that I would go with. I think the thinking fast and slow story is pretty good. Uh, and you've reviewed a book. Let's talk about that briefly because then we'll talk about the other areas. But um, he, it's a Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperby's book, uh, The Enigma of Reason. Mm. What do they add to, the, to, to this field? Well, they take a very different view from Kahneman. Um, so people like Kahneman, uh, they're acknowledging that we are not reasoning logically all the time but they're allowing that we can do it sometimes and that the mental processes we use to reason are sort of um, a general method for finding things out about the world. I mean, whether we want to work out whether Linda is just a bank teller or a bank teller and a feminist, or whether we want to work out what it's safe to eat, for example, we're using this same set of mental processes. But Mercier and Sperber say, no, no, we have a number of different mental processes which are designed for different tasks. And we have a special one which feeds into reasoning and it evolved to enable us to make good decisions with other people. This is the 
big innovation of their approach. They say that reasoning is for social consumption. So reasoning is not an individual activity, which which sort of goes against what has traditionally been thought of reason. It's usually a man sitting in a room thinking things and logically connecting them. Exactly right. You know, with their with their kind of fist to their forehead, <laughs> deep in solitary thought. I mean, that's the classical picture of reasoning. And most people would assume that when we argue and discuss with other people, we are doing something secondary to that. We're doing a kind of a that's kind of a byproduct. Discussing with other people is just a byproduct of reasoning alone. Whereas Berber and Messier are putting it the other way around. They're saying that um, evolution gave us reasoning so that we could do it in pairs and larger groups. And when we sit and do it alone in a room, that's a kind of the pale shadow. We can't do it quite so well under those circumstances because that's not what it was meant for by evolution. And they give plenty of, of, of practical historical examples of this working. They do. I mean, they, they um, review laboratory experiments, but also in a very engaging way. They discuss William Blackstone on the value of juries, because, of course, jury decision-making is group social decision-making. Jefferson on the importance of free debate about religion. They do lots of historical examples. One of the nicest is that they quote Montaigne saying... um, The study of books is a languishing and feeble motion that heats not, whereas conversation teaches and exercises at once. So obviously even Montaigne thought that, you know, reasoning alone in a room through reading is nowhere near as good as being in conversation with others. And how much of this is, uh, is it fruitful to even consider this as level of of consciousness or instinct? Because are we saying that, you know, the, the kind of Kahneman approach, that you have this sort of instinctive ability to to make a decision is this saying that uh, are we consciously plugging into other networks and and using a sort of wisdom of crowds a sort of hive mind together or is it something that we are instinctively doing well i think kahneman allows that there's an unconscious instinctive or habitual mode of solving problems that would be his system one his fast system and then on the other hand there's the conscious, slow system too. With um, Mercier and Sperber, actually one of the slight weaknesses of their book is that they don't specify exactly how they disagree with Kahneman. But it seems to be in part that they say it really is only ever an instinct which feeds in to conscious reasoning. The work is being done by an instinct. They don't really allow for it being sort of overlearned mental habits. And consciousness, well, you know, it's always a difficult topic. Um, what kind of work they think is being done by conscious processes wasn't entirely clear to me. I'm fascinated. We actually had Tim Crane, uh, our philosophy editor, on sort of the mind-body problem and the issue of consciousness. We had him in the paper and, and on this podcast and wrestled with it more or less fruitlessly for for 10 minutes. Uh, I I often say this to Tim, and I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. What's the practical consequence of this type of theorising? Where does this take us, either at the level of the species or at the level of of advancement of of human knowledge? What's the, 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 you know, in some pragmatic approach, what's the cash value of this type of thinking? 
I'm not at all sure that discussions of the nature of consciousness have what you describe as cash value. Um, I, I think if we were having a broader discussion, you know, we would look more closely at what cash value is. And I think there may be certain kinds of inquiries which are enriching, even if they don't have much cash value. Yeah. But keeping to, 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 you know, the reasoning issue, you can, you can deal with this fairly separately from questions about consciousness. And the kind of view which is being put forward in the enigma of reason, I think, has a lot of practical significance. So, for example, Mercier and Sperber are saying there is evidence that we are much better at um, evaluating reasons put forward by other people than we are at producing reasons. They put forward some evidence of that. Um, that would bear further checking. Um, if it's true, then it has relevance for education. I mean, then it's, it's the production of reasons that education programs need to work on um, if that's not as good as the evaluation of reasons. And it's kind of heartening, isn't it? I mean, we have to leave it here, Celia, but in some ways this is a great humanist notion that we are better when we collaborate, when we when we share. And that's at a, at a time when perhaps we're becoming ever more individualistic and isolated. That's quite a strong message. I agree. It's, it's uplifting. Um, and I think it's even more uplifting when one considers the possibility that it's not in our genes. Mercier and Sperber very strongly feel that this asymmetry as being better at evaluation and production is in our genes. I think it might be something already which is being fostered by education, but education in the informal sense. I think kids might learn from others as they're growing up to be better at evaluation than production of reasons, rather than that difference being in the genes. Yeah, I get that, and and I think it's a it's a it's a positive thing. See, it's been such a great pleasure talking to you, and it's uh, I do like when we do this these philosophical pieces. It's a lovely piece. It's very very clear, and it does raise some interesting questions. But I, you know, we've just been talking about Donald Trump beforehand, which is depressing, and talking about the great value of collaboration. I think it's very very uh, the opposite of that. So, Celia Hayes, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. As, as go on, I go on. Well, no, I mean, are you going to quibble? Gonna she, quibble? <laughs> no, she actually made Cecilia actually made the point that I was that I was sort of about to ask about, which was, does that mean that we are inherently lazy as thinkers? If it's if it's that much easier for us to evaluate reasoning than it is to produce it, does that equate with a laziness and in, an innate laziness? Or she said it partially does, then I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that not... would be the same with Daniel Kahneman. Uh, yeah, which, theory, you, which is we leap to conclusions. Yeah, and in some ways you're slightly within you're intellectually dressing up, punting. You're basically saying, and it's all wisdom of crowds thing does the same notion, which is that if you ask enough people, you will get to the the, the right answer. Or in the Kahneman thing, if you just punt it. Hey, Malcolm Gladwell has done something on this as well. The idea, yeah. Um, uh, again, and there's a thing about art and 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 your response to art, and and it's it's the sort of it's 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 putting a pre premium on the instinct. Mm. But if the answer then is there's a checks and balance system socially, I think that becomes more positive. Yeah, that's a much more lovely humanist approach to, to this collective, you know, it's a collective conundrum that we'll work out together, which we're, is... We're all in it together. It's lovely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're all blind leading the blind, comes to mind. That's, that's certainly true. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Michael Hoffman, the German-born poet, translator and critic, is a long-time contributor to the TLS. Look in our archive and you'll find, and I don't think I'm exaggerating actually, hundreds of reviews and essays by or about him or his work. And there are plenty of poems too. Another of our writers once pointed out that between 1980 and 1990 alone, the TLS published 34 poems by Hoffman. So we're clearly admirers. Hoffman is also one of his generation's most accomplished translators, with a back catalogue including Joseph Roth, Herta Muller, Peter Stamm, Gottfried Benn and Hans Verlader. He's translated the entire oeuvre of Franz Kafka, the latest instalment of which, Investigations of a Dog and Other Creatures, has just been published. All of which makes it little surprise that the people at the Man Booker have just named Hoffman among the judges for the 2018 Prize for Fiction in Translation. In this week's paper, we're happy to show Hoffman bringing these two strands of his work together in a lucid translation of a poem by Hans Magnus Enzensberger called Female 33. Joining us on the line now is Michael. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, a few questions before we hand over to you to read the poem, please. Surely. Yep. What do you look for? when you're deciding whether you want to translate a work or not? What, what kind of works would you say that you're attracted to? Um, I mean, uh, translators are, are, I think, possibilists and, and impossibilists. And I'm a, I'm a possibilist. So I, I like to have the feeling that, uh, you know, when I, I kind of cut my hands together and carry something from one side to another, that uh, a, a lot of it has come across. And that means that I, I'm not interested in or less interested in poetry with, with lots of, sort of formal bells and whistles you know, there there is something sort of projective about translating, and, and you know, there are, there are things that that you might 
wish you had been able to do yourself. Do you have to like it? Yeah, do you have to like I mean, I'm always interested. Do you you have to like it? Do you have to love it? I mean, do you have to find a writer that you commune with? Do you have to find a piece that you take great pleasure in reading in the original? And then you have the job of conveying that pleasure. Is that is that how you'd look at it? Yes, I think I I think that's right. I mean, I I remember this this uh, book of Magnus's of of, uh, Hans Magnus Ensensberger's came out in 1979. It's called Die, Die Furie des The Fury of Disappearance. I mean, I, I could read it in German, but I thought it was, if it had been an English book, I thought it would have been, uh, it would have been amazing. And it was one of, the, I was just starting out filling your, <laughs> filling your columns and pages in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, the more I, I, I think about it, the more, the more important he was to me. And, and uh, poetry that, that's full of things, uh, full, of, uh, full of nouns, full of people, uh, full of uh, intimated stories. I thought this was absolutely the thing to do. Well, we should we should hear this, uh, Michael, because um, we've read it uh, and it's lovely uh, and it's fascinating and it's a very intriguing thing. Would you do us uh, the favour of reading it for us now? Sure, surely. Female, 33. It wasn't at all what she expected, that whole succession of rusty VW Beatles. One time she almost married a baker. She read Hesse in the 60s. Handke in the 70s. Now she does Sudokus in bed. She's no pushover. For years she was a Trotskyist, but with a difference. She's never had to use a ration card. The thought of Cambodia makes her feel ill. Her last boyfriend, the professor, liked her to spank him. Green batik dresses from Monsoon, worn loose. Leaf miners in her Swiss cheese plant. She wanted to paint that or emigrate. The title of her M. Fell, Class Struggles in Ulm, 1500 to 1512, as reflected in the folk songs of the period. Grant applications, full stuff, and a box of notes. Her grandmother sends her a check from time to time. Faces in the mirror, hours in moisturizer, shy twerks in the bathroom. She says, whatever happens, I'll not starve. When she cries, You'd swear she was 19. Michael, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I love the last. I love the last couple of lines of that. It's just full of such just excellent images. It is. Each one of them is sort of quietly, just crunching. Yeah, it's distilled, isn't it? It's yeah. Very distilled to an essence. Absolutely. Whether whether, I'd love to be able to read the original and, and work out what he's done with it. It seems like. It'd be quite a hard idiom to translate, I, I would imagine. That. Well, I mean, and that was that's something that's very interesting as well. What denotes a successful translation? The weighing up of Germanness and Englishness. How you how you translate something without losing the the original. We should do a translation podcast. We should we should get a couple of translators in and yeah and do that. Yeah. You know? Yeah, let's. Okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> uh, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Edward Lutvak, Michael Hoffman, and Celia Hayes. She's called Cecilia, but when you speak to her, she likes to be called Celia. I'm not just constantly. I think she's just being polite. She's being polite, yeah. But apparently, she said that, so it's okay. I'm calling her Celia Hayes. Uh, do go to the-tls.co.uk to see this week's edition of the paper, which also includes a theory of energy, the slaughter in Raqqa, and plenty of German literature. And tweet this podcast at fbfm underscore podcast with your comments and thoughts. Please review us on iTunes next week. I don't much care about the podcast as I shall be on holiday and Thea will be on holiday. Separately. 
separately. That's very, very <laughs> fair to do. You're not going to be sitting across the table talking... Planning the next podcast. Planning your nonsense about <laughs> literature and philosophy. Um, I do care, really. I'm just kidding. Irrefutable northerner Lucy Dallas and fiction guru Toby Lishtig will be here to entertain you instead of us. Lucy, if you remember, likes music and not reading. Toby likes Ema McBride. So God knows what you will get next week. Thea and I shall return in two weeks' time. So until then, goodbye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.